Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. You're listening to a special podcast we're doing in conjunction with our friends at Princeton University Press. We call it the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. In the podcast, we'll be publishing two interviews with Princeton authors every month. If you're interested in following along, you can subscribe to the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast on the NBN or on your favorite podcast app. The podcast includes not only interviews in the series, but all the interviews we've ever done with Princeton authors, hundreds of them. We hope you enjoy this series, and we hope you visit our friends at Princeton University Press on the web. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to welcome you to the Princeton Ideas podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Edmund Fawcett about his book, Conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition. I very much enjoyed this book, and I think you should run out and buy it and read it. And so let me say to Edmund, welcome to the show. Very glad to be with you. So perhaps you could begin the interview by just saying a few words about yourself and who you are. I am a political author. I was for 30 years a political journalist. I worked in many countries, uh, eight years as the chief correspondent for The Economist magazine in Washington, but also for the same magazine in Paris, in Berlin, as well as Brussels. And uh, my, uh, I was the European and the literary editor on the same magazine. So I've been a political journalist most of my career. But uh, later on, I uh, took to um, writing political books. And this is my second one. Yes, we'll talk about the, the first one in just a second. Um, so uh, as I said in the pre-interview, the traditional first question on the New Books Network is, why did you write Conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition? I wrote I wrote this book um, because I'm bewildered by the predicament we're in. And I think that speaking as somebody who is, uh, I'd put it on the liberal left, uh, I think we, um, speaking for all of us in that position, I think we often don't listen hard enough to the opposition. So I thought to myself, I really must understand the strength of conservatism, why it is so enduring, why it is so dominant, and uh, what it has to say for itself. Um, I, I wrote it for everybody concerned with politics on either side of the aisle, who, like me, are bewildered and who wanted some sort of a political map. It follows a book of similar kind, similar shape, that I wrote um, two or three, well, uh, actually six years ago. It came out a second edition as well um, on liberalism, uh, which I thought, again, uh, was for different reasons, not very well understood in that liberalism is sort of so much part of the air we breathe, so much part of the, so much is taken for granted about it. I thought, again, that would be worth telling the history of. So both books start in the 19th century and run through until now. And um, both of them take in uh, party political history, politicians, government, and the story of political ideas, neither of which I sense really makes sense without the other. I was a little bit envious as an author myself that you got to write these two books because you spent a lot of time on liberalism and then you got to shift over to conservatism, which must have given you great perspective. Well, it, it, I, had to do, I had to do a lot of reading, but I, I, you know, having been in um, uh, 
as a reporter in politics, uh, I'd seen, um, as it were, politicians up front and I'd seen government, um, you know, as an outsider on the inside, if you will. And I'd always been interested in political philosophy, political thought, but somehow I wanted to try to put the two together. I'm not an academic. Um, I'm not a, a, you know, I don't, not doctored, but I think I have a perspective (laughs) that is really, really quite valuable. Um, Somebody who's seen it from the inside, but is also aware of how important ideas are, how important the way we talk about politics, how we fight about politics in the public domain, you know, the words we choose, the ideas we use. So I've been fascinated always by that, sensitive to it. And I tried in both books to get something of that across, you know, that combination. That's great. Well, let's jump right into it. Uh, you begin the book by talking about conservatism's forerunners. And I note the word forerunners. You mentioned Burke and Maestra. Every conservative and perhaps every college graduate knows about Burke. So let me ask you this. Well, you say a lot. It's full of ironies because one of the things you point out is that there was no conservatism in Burke's time. There wasn't such a thing. <laughs> and so is th- this sort of nascent period of conservatism a response to liberalism and the French Revolution? That's kind of a cliche itself. Is that true? Well, I think I think Burke and those other forerunners um, were, were very, very important in that they gave later political conservatives a kind of arsenal of arguments and ideas. Uh, Burke himself um, is indeed a kind of, he's he's the sort of intellectual godfather of of modern conservatism. But in historical terms, Burke intellectually is really quite a late invention, you know, late 19th century. Um, Burke himself was, why, why do I say he was before conservatism? Well, conservatism like liberalism didn't exist until... I don't know, the 1820s, the 1830s, because both of them were responses to a condition of society that Burke didn't even glimpse. What am I talking about? I'm talking really about the onset of modern capitalism at its fullest. And Burke Burke was writing in the 1780s, 1790s. He didn't, and none of the forerunners really could see this. They couldn't see what they were facing. Burke's criticism of the French Revolution really amounted to two. He said that the French state shouldn't have um, bought up um, and shouldn't have sold um, uh, religious ecclesiastical land. And the second point um, was that um, political intellectuals were mischievous um, and shouldn't be trusted. They caused trouble. The first point really was of no interest to conservatives at all. The second point went into the conservative canon and has become you know, one of their strongest points against the opposition. You know, the conservatives, as it were, of a Burkean who appealed to Burke, say, we're the sensible ones, we respect tradition, we understand human nature, we don't make unnecessary changes. It's always these mischievous intellectuals who think they can see better, who believe foolishly in human progress and equality, who cause trouble and disturb things that don't need disturbing. And that message, you know, which was distilled from an enormous canon of Burke's speeches and writings is really what the Burke the conservative amounts to. He 
book did indeed have a small following in the United States in the 1830s. Um, there was a, an, an American conservative, a lawyer called Rufus Choate, who always included Burke in his variable canons of worthies, you know, Milton, Plato, Shakespeare, Burke. <laughs> um, but th this was really a, a sport. It was, a, it was an exception. Burke in the United States was um, revived by Russell Kirk in the 1940s or 50s and, and has never really been an important influence in American politics. It's much too hothouse and rarefied um, um, a, a, a tradition. In, in Britain, um, the, the Burke was revived in the, in the late 19th century. Um, indeed, as late as uh, 18, the 1880s, the first um, sort of academic history of the Tory party mentioned Burke only in the first chapter and, and then more or less in passing. So, you know, Burke is um, often cited and he's up there. He's, he's a sort of wonderful figure to appeal to. But actually, when you scratch, there isn't a lot of conservatism there. Yeah, I, I, I like the part of the book where you said that the people that constructed the conservative Burke had to go back into his writings and cherry pick them very <laughs> aggressively, <laughs> which is always the case. Uh, is it fair to say that if Burke were transported somehow magically into our own age, he would be horrified by conservatism? And the reason I ask this question is the things which he really loved, monarchy, aristocracy, established religion, they're all gone. Absolutely. I think, he would be I think he'd be, well, he'd be, possibly he wouldn't be surprised. He would be horrified. Um, I, I think he'd be, I think he would be, he'd be horrified by what he hadn't experienced, namely um, this great engine of change and material prosperity, modern capitalism, which at the same time, turns traditions, society, expectations, ethics upside down all the time. And I think Burke would have been bewildered by that. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great ironies of the book and the history of conservatism in general is that it, Burke's conservatism is not our conservatism at, at all, except in its reverence for traditions. That is, modern conservatives, if I read you correctly, accept capitalism and sometimes even love it. And they like democracy, which for Burke, these were foreign things. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I, mean, I, I don't think one should exaggerate the, the, the difficulty here. Conservatives, um, wise conservatives, uh, managed to keep two things in balance, namely you know, their, their defense of property, order, and capitalism. And on the other hand, some sense of social... Um, community, some sense of uh, tradition, ethical stability, and these are the these are the two voices of modern conservatism. And you, when conservatism is successful, um, they, as, as in party terms, they have tended to keep those two in balance. I think they've got out of balance recently. So let, let me ask this very well. Yes, let me ask this question. So you just differentiate between a conservative outlook and conservative ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think what I was aiming at was to uh, make clear that conservatism is 
it's like a practice of politics. The, 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 the fact that it's an ism is misleading because that makes us think that it's somehow a, a body of doctrine or a body of ideas, even a philosophy. But actually, conservatism, like liberalism, is a practice, a historical practice of politics. It has a beginning, hasn't yet had an end, but it's got a you know, datable beginning early in the 19th century. It responded to a particular condition of society. It has followers, politicians, voters, thinkers, and so on. It has ideas. It has lots of them. It has an outlook. It has programs. But it isn't a philosophy. Philosophy sort of existed at a different level. I mean, this may seem a sort of unduly pointy-headed um, distinction, but I think it's very important because it's it's much too easy, I think, in looking at the political right, particularly today, to try and hunt out an outlook, a theory, a, a philosophy. But you have to do both. You have to get get some sense of how the political right, the various thinkers, justify um, what it is the political right is up to, how they set out its ideals, and so forth. But at the same time, you have to see you have to see what actually the political right is doing. So you need to keep the two together. I think the way I put it in my book was that um, uh, conservatism is a practice that has an outlook, but is not itself an outlook. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you point out in the book is that the ideas that conservatives in any given time affiliate themselves with, associate themselves with, have changed dramatically. The outlook, that is the the conservative, you might call it, I don't know, reflex has remained relatively the same. But, you know, as we just said, with Burke, I mean, if he came and he saw the modern welfare state, he, he would, well, if he saw capitalism, especially neoliberalism, this kind of thing, he'd be shocked. I think that's right. And, and I, again, I think the, put it this way, the character of what conservatives resisted in the early 19th century and were trying to preserve hasn't greatly changed. But the content has. I mean, let's just take two examples. Um, the property. Conservatives started out in defense of property. But what was property when conservatives got started in the 1820s, 30s? Certainly for conservatives, property was property in land. It was sort of visible. Now, what is property? Property is virtual, it's invisible, it's utterly changed. It comes in so many forms, one can't you know, begin, to begin to enumerate them. Um, this was a point that was you know, noted by Marx, it was noted by Schumpeter, that you know, the nature of property was changing. So if you start out at this beginning of conservatism and look now, when conservatives then defended property, in one sense, they're defending something very different from what conservatives defend now. In another sense, they're defending the same thing. Also, who owns property has hugely changed. Then, very, very few people own property. Now, many, many, many people own property. Rich, poor, all sorts of people. So, again, I mean, that's both what property is and who owns it has vastly changed. But you can understand we're still talking about property. Another example is the state. I mean, all... Any political outlook has to have a view of the state. But when the conservatives in the 1820s and 
30s were thinking about the state, it was an utterly different thing in one way from what we talk about today. Just in matter of size, the state then was tiny. Taxation was, I mean, these counts are always difficult, but less than 10%. Now, the state occupies 40, 50% of um, a country's economy. Well, you know, are these the same thing or not? Well, you know, it, one can get very pedantic about that. But clearly, in one way, the scale and the reach of the modern state is vastly greater than the scale or reach of the state that early conservatives were talking about. But in another way, they're talking about the same thing. I mean, they're talking about a political authority which, as liberals wanted, ought to be very constrained, and as conservatives wanted, um, should be um, uh, you know, tr- trusted and given um, you know, full, full authority. Uh, yeah, regarding, I was going to say regarding property, you reminded me of one of my favorite Tocqueville anecdotes. And so he comes to the United States. He's a French noble, obviously, and he wanders around the United States. And he writes back to his correspondents, astounded. He says, Americans will buy a house just to sell it. <laughs> perfect. I mean, that's a perfect He was just gobsmacked by this. He was like, right. I don't, I just don't understand it. <laughs> so let's move into the historical narrative. Uh, you, you describe four phases of conservatism. And the first one is from 1830 to 1880. And you call that resisting liberalism. Um, I might have entitled it losing to liberalism. But could you talk a little bit about that period? Yes, I mean, that, that, that would have been that would have been an equally good title. Um, the first conservatives were, uh, they, they were the you know, children and grandchildren of people who had been used to ruling. Um, there's a German um, political historian who had a very nice phrase for this, which was that, you know, that, that, that their their attitude um, to um, you know to government was is not ought. They didn't about <laughs> what they ought to be doing. They knew what they should be doing. Why? Yeah. Because you know their parents and grandparents had done it. They were used to ruling. Conservatives by the um, 1820s and 30s, they were the political outs. The liberals became the political ins. And and it took conservatives not very long to learn the the rules of the new game and to uh, become equals to liberals at the electoral game and indeed to beat them. And that roughly was the... um, political story from the 1830s to the 1880s. Um, It was the smoothest in uh, Britain, where you you had a a parliamentary system that had had some history, and you had two parties, the Tories and the Whigs. Uh, The Tories became the Conservatives, the Whigs became the Liberals, and um, the, the, the Tories eventually um, learnt enough about electoral politics to prevail over the liberals. The story was more complicated in the United States because the party labels don't quite fit. You had, um, you know, Whigs and Jacksonians who morphed into um, Democrats and Republicans. The story was even more complicated and in interesting ways in 
um, Germany and France, because there the the conservative forces took much longer to accept that the past had gone and that the old regime was never coming back. In France, the conservatives, um, as it, you could divide them into the compromises and the, those resisting. The resistant conservatives fought into the 1870s to try somehow and preserve um, the old regime to bring back the monarchy against the republic. In Germany, the story was even more troubling, of course. Um, there wasn't really in Germany um, anything we would recognize as liberal democracy until 1918. And part of that reason, part of the reason for that, was indeed the um, resistance of the um, German right to um, anything resembling liberal democracy. Although there were, after um, 1871, um, the unification of Germany, there there were um, conservative parties that fought the electoral game and indeed were, for the majority, um, compromisers who'd accepted um, uh, that you would have uh, a liberal democratic um, um, political game. I think one of the things that comes out in this chapter is how revolutionary political parties themselves were in this era. I mean, I'm a historian of Russia myself. And in Russia in the 19th century, uh, Burke would have felt very at home because political parties were by their very definition subversive. They couldn't be allowed. That's that's quite right. And I I mean, I, I don't go into that particular aspect in my book. Well, I do mention the importance of um, some exemplary political leaders who made, or they or their agents, made modern political parties. And to stand out, um, McKinley in the United States with his agent, Mark Hanna, who shaped and and created, helped create um, the modern Republican Party. And in Britain, um, Lord Salisbury, who started out as a fierce opponent of um, democratic um, government, but ended up realizing that the conservative cause was best served by developing a really successful modern party. And they had um, all kinds of things like political agents, local clubs, and so forth. And that was really thanks to Salisbury and his agents. So the creation of political parties was extremely important. Yeah, I mean, as you point out, there was some excellent leadership on the conservative side that convinced uh, sort of Burkeans, if I can say that, uh, or my Russian friends, that actually political parties were a legitimate thing, that they weren't necessarily subversive, that they could play the electoral game and actually win. And, you know, that's a kind of adaptability that you see in conservatism uh, time and again, that they managed to adapt themselves to something that in Burke's era they hated. That is essentially liberal democracy with parties. But by the 1880s, you see them everywhere. Well, not in Russia, but <laughs> in Western Europe, at least. No, that, that's quite right. And I mean, I think you have to, have to um, go back to <clears throat> Burke and the, um, the, and the critics of the French Revolution. I mean, you have to remember that at, at that time, um, although we talk about political parties and there were political parties in Britain, um, there were Whigs and Tories in the parliament, but you're talking about a political context in w- which... Um, in a, a very small number of people um, 
participated. Um, many, many people were still couldn't could, still couldn't read or write. You know, the political game was transformed in the next half century in ways I think that people like Burke and his fellow critics of the French Revolution couldn't imagine. And the first, the first conservative party politicians were operating in a quite different context. And they learned in you know, the, this period in the first part of my book from 1830 to 1880, they learned the lessons very quickly. Yes, they, they really did. And I mean, this shows true dynamism among conservatives as they, they, they really do glom onto electoral politics and form parties that are reasonably successful at, at the ballot box. I mean, even with a limited franchise. And it's, it's a remarkable period. Well, let's move on to the next yeah, period. Canny, you talk about. They're Go very ahead. at what they do. <laughs> One of the great, yes, tra- if you can call it that, of the conservative is to convince their opponents that they're somehow sticking the muds. And they're actually very fly and quick. Yes, um, no, that's right. To yeah, adapt themselves right. to modern circumstances. Yeah. So that that's a tremendous compromise, just accepting political parties, and they do very well in that sphere. Let's move on to the next period you talk about, and that's 1880 to 1945, and you right. call this ad- adaptation and compromise, and you talk about the creation of something that makes the mind uh, sort of spin a little bit. Liberal conservatives and uh, their right their center-right parties. Can you talk about the birth of the liberal conservative? Yes, no, it, sounds like, it sounds like kind of, um, you know, red-green. It sounds like a, yeah, um, a contradiction. Yeah. In my defense, um, uh, liberal conservatives, actually, I think I have a citation, forgive me, it slipped my mind, which German, um, which far-sighted German writer, lawyer actually said it. But I think from the, from the 1830s, um, there is a German uh, writer observing the phenomenon of the liberal conservatives. So um, it's, it's quite a good description. I think what I'm getting at is that over the course of um, the 19th century, um, as they adapted to modern um, liberal capitalism, conservatives had a choice. Either they remained um, resistant, recalcitrant, uh, trying to bring back the past or hold up the future, or they became, in effect, right-wing liberals. What I mean by that, I mean liberals who are keen on business, defending business, finance, property, but who understand that they can't control all aspects of human life. They can't tell people what to think or do or how to behave. In other words, they have to be socially quite liberal. And I think conservatives, when they were successful in this second period, I think they got that message and became what I call right-wing liberals or liberal conservatives. Who do I mean? There are figures like... um, centrist figures like Baldwin in the United States, or to push um, on a little further in in the United States. I'm thinking of the tradition of Eisenhower, even Nixon. These were people who were liberal conservatives. In France, you see it in um, the... um, uh, the Gaullists and the um, liberal Republicans. It's a very familiar um, compromise. Um, would it be correct to say that in this period, 1880 to 1945, that you see 
a kind of conservative intellectual efflorescence, a kind of blooming of a recognizable conservative, I want to call it an ideology. And I'm thinking of people like Schumpeter, von Mises, Hayek, people that come to defend, which is something I, I keep thinking of Burke and what he would have thought of this. They, they really try to make, and they make excellent defenses of free market capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about them? Sure. Um, can I go back a step? I think I, I kind of jumped, I, 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 I jumped the rails um, and leapt from um, 1880 to 45 into um, a, a later period. Sure, that's I, fine. Um, I think 1880 to 45, I think conservative intellectuals um, are very interesting. Um, They too faced a a similar difficulty um, or a similar challenge to the one that party politicians had faced. Party politicians were were facing the challenge with varying degrees of success, um, namely, how do we buy into liberal capitalism? How do we compromise with liberal modernity? If you look at this period, 1880 to 1945, conservative intellectuals are actually, they have much more trouble in accepting what you could call the liberal status quo, uh, the liberal democratic status quo. Um, they, they And they come in two forms. Either they t- uh, stay in politics, in which they, the case they become, um, as it were, extreme troublemakers uh, on, on the right, um, particularly in, in France and Germany. Um, I'm thinking of figures like um, Charles Maurras in France or Carl Schmitt in Germany, who um, keep up uh, a fearsome and you know, quite strong intellectual barrage against liberal democracy. Or they leave politics, party politics, daily politics of any kind, and they become, in effect, cultural critics. They say... Liberal modernity, liberal capitalism is a wrong or ugly way to live. Uh, And uh, examples there are um, T.S. Eliot um, and jumping forward, uh, Roger Scruton, or jumping backwards, um, Coleridge and Carlyle. So you you have really, in, in this period... Um, 1880 to 1945, you have two possibilities for people who don't get into the liberal democratic game on the right. You can either be um, a kind of go to the hard right and try to reject the system or step out of politics and become a cultural critic. And cultural criticism of this kind has always been, ever since, a very, very strong th- a voice in, among conservative intellectuals. I was going to say I was going to. Uh, Roger Scruton recently passed. He's very yeah. worth reading on this. He's yes, yeah, very brilliant person. Yes. Um, so it, in it, staying within this period, eighteen eighty to nineteen forty-five, uh, and this is an age-old question: How are we to understand fascism within the framework which you've set up? What is it, and how does it relate to the conservative tradition? It's very good to get try to get this clear. Um, I mean, there are no knockdown facts of the matter. It's a, a little bit about what labels we use, but 
the labels I want to try and use, which I, I use in the book, exclude fascism from conservatism. How, how do I explain that? Um, fascism is off the liberal democratic playing field. Conservatism is on the liberal democratic playing field. It's on the right. Even authoritarian, in other words, unliberal conservatism is still just on the playing field. It's sort of at the edge. Fascism is off the edge. Why? Because fascism, two reasons. One is fascism and Nazism were historically quite specific. You know, they arose after a particular historical time, after a ruinous world, unexpected world war in which Germany certainly was defeated. They arose in the 1920s, but particularly the 30s, at a time, again, of unexpected economic slump. Um, and they were abetted by um, weakness in the political structure, weakness in the support for democracy of conservative parties. But they were nevertheless, um, particularly Nazism, was you know, quite specific. Um, it involved you know, the cult of the charismatic hero. It involved popular mobilization. It um, ruled to a large extent by fear and terror. Um, it, um, its enemy was um, liberal society, which it tried to um, totalize and control. Um, its enemy was not really democratic mobilization. It tried to use democratic mobilization in its own defense. Anyway, you know, you go on about exactly what fa fascism was, um, but it is very distinct from conservatism. Often, yeah, I, mean, I find often on the left. Gonna, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say I find this convincing, and one of the things I will remind people, and I used to remind my students, is that Hitler in the 1930s, well, the 1920s, he ran on a platform of eliminating political parties. He gave speeches about it. That, that that was the point was to get rid of parties. <laughs> this is not something any conservative would want to do. Not at all. Uh, yeah, particularly not a liberal conservative. Now, just if just throw in an extra point, um, you know, to, to on on fascism and conservatism. Um, it's often said, I think, rather sort of loosely on the left, uh, you know, as it were particularly when getting angry, which doesn't happen, which you know, doesn't take much in politics. <laughs> the left, you know, the left, somebody on the left says, says of a conservative, oh, you're a fascist. This is nonsense. Um, a, another a kind of counterpart mistake is to say, oh, liberal democracy, lots of trouble at the moment, terrible kind of partisan conflict and many, many economic, social difficulties, et cetera, et cetera, all of which are true. Um, however, we're not fascist, um, as if, you know, you can sigh with relief and say, good, at least we're not fascist, which is a counterpart, terrible argument to make. And I, I suppose all of which, just finish this one up, is to say, let's remember that fascism is on the right. It's related in some way to conservatism, but it's historically specific. And let's hope it's over and done with. Yes, let's do so let's move on to the third phase you talk about, which is 1945 to 1980, and you call this political command and intellectual recovery. Um, 
Could you talk a little bit about, it seems to me at this point, uh, conservatives embrace the welfare state, at least they do in Western Europe. Um, and then the money runs out. Yeah. And then you have the Reagan and Thatcher revolution. Could you talk us through that period? Yes. And I mean, just I I think um, the right really embraced or conservatives in the United States also embraced um, what what you have there of the welfare state. You don't have um, the universal health systems that are common across Western Europe. But that aside, you have very much um, a, a, a welfare state. Um, on that, um, I mean, not all conservatives agree with that. Um, in 1952, I think it was when um, Eisenhower surprisingly won the Republican nomination against um, a great conservative, uh, Taft. Um, one Taft supporter said, "Well, I guess this will be eight years of socialism." <laughs> so, I think, so I think you have what um, a hard right Republican will call. Um, socialism. You have that in your country too. So roughly speaking, you're right. I mean, a, a thumbnail is you had 20, 30 um, uh, good years, um, d- despite all the difficulties. Uh, in France, they're called the, the uh, Trente Glorieuses uh, from roughly you know the 1940s to the 1970s. And then, as you say, the money runs out. Not quite. Uh, there was a terrible inflation in the 1970s coupled with unemployment, which was a great surprise to everybody, including above all economists, um, government was overstretched. And the free market economists um, seized the moment and you know, made of this crisis of the 1970s, they made of it something that really needed addressing. Um, you, you, you then had, um, first in Britain, then in the United States, followed actually not long after in France and Germany, with what you could call a sort of free market turn. I think a tiny bit of skepticism is needed here to distinguish between what the free marketeers advertised and what actually they delivered. Um, the money didn't actually run out um, by the 1990s, let's not forget, economies had stabilized, inflation had gone. It was, again, a glorious period for liberal capitalism and um, deficits were um, run down um, and, um, you know, the welfare was increased, if anything. The free marketeers advertised this great sort of slash and burn of government. But, you know, just to take the British example, when Thatcher came into office in 1979, I think government spending as a share of GDP was you know, roughly um, 40%. When she left, it was roughly 40%. So looking at some gross numbers, this great revolution wasn't really um, as big as it looked. That said, I think for reasons that had less to do with the free market politicians than with social changes, economic changes that were going on anyway. The end of the happy period of the 1990s has left, I I mean economically, has left um, a large number of unsolved problems, which, you know, the Reagan and Thatcher period um, handed on without answers to their successors. And I think into that gap of unfortunate, answered challenges. What I call the hard right has now plunged. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Republican Party as it became 
um, in the you know 2010s and now, uh, or the Tory party in Britain um, that became um, um, anti-European, um, the one we have now. And these are parties that conservatives will tell you are, um, they're not conservative at all. They're not the true conservatism. Yeah. And I was going to say that brings us right to phase four, which is 1980, the present. And you introduced two terms. You've talked about one of them, but let's deal with both of them. Um, one is hyperliberalism and the other is the hard right. What is hyperliberalism? Well, I suppose hyperliberalism. It's a, um, I'm, I'm you know, losing my temper here and you know, <laughs> using slogan terms to get attention. I think what I mean is the hard right. Sorry, forgive me. I, I mean the market liberal, um, economic liberal, who doesn't accept that there are um, limits to the idea that markets solve everything and that government is always the problem. That's and these would be, for, this, for, for example, lib libertarians, if I can... Well, libertarians in, in the United States, I think they've the branded yeah. themselves libertarians. Um, Paul Rand, is that his name, um, would be an example. Um, and they, you know, they, they have counterparts in Britain and, and, and the rest of Europe. I think I say hyper because you can accept that the market needs to flourish and not be too interfered with so it fails to deliver and it fails to pay the bills and put, put um, food in the shops. You can accept that. And yet you can accept a, a strong role for government, a strong role for government both in helping those who need help and by you know, supporting the economy, uh, the market, when, as it regularly does, it gets into trouble that it can't solve itself. I think most moderate, liberal-minded conservatives would accept what I've just said. However, I, I think hyper-liberals um, don't accept that. I think they want to drive the idea that markets solve everything and that government ought to get out of our lives as much as possible. I think they drive that too far. They forget that there, are, there is a need for guardrails and safety nets. And they, um, have to, to a large extent, they have um, become um, very strong on the right, uh, thanks in part to extremely well-financed um, think tanks and indeed very, very clever people who have articulated the libertarian gospel. But they're only one part of this strange... Um, creature that I call the hard right. Um, they're one part of it. The other part of it is a one nation kind of conservatism that talks in populist vein in the name of the people. So you have libertarians who are um, very globalist um, in their outlook. They're quite happy for you know, international trade to go on without let or hindrance. On the other hand, they're in alliance with these people who are almost mercantilist in their economics and who talk very much about um, the defense of the nation. They're all, for, even for, they're all for welfare so long as it goes to the right people and not, for example, to foreigners. You, you see this, what am I talking about? You see this in the, in the Republican Party now um, to a large extent and you see it in the British Conservative Party. You see these two elements what I call hyper-liberalism in the economics and um, a one-nation populist right 
on the other. And it seems intellectually and politically even incoherent, but it's been extremely successful to most people's surprise, 2016, 2017. Hmm. I, was, I was interested in the use of the word populist. I'm always interested when I hear it. Yes. As a historian, I, I keep thinking, this isn't populism, this is nationalism. Am I wrong in thinking that? No, I think you're right. I think both terms, both populism and nationalism are tricky. Um, I, I lent heavily in the book, and I think it's a wonderful short book written by a Princeton scholar, Jan Werner Müller, um, on populism. And he makes a very, he, his essential point is at using populism's own um, contested terms. He said that populism is an elite phenomenon. It's really, it's not as populists present themselves populist defending the people against the elites. It's actually two elites fighting each other. The populists are the outs who want to replace the ins, and they claim to be speaking in the name of that imaginary being, the people. So you see that in, let me think, uh, let me think of a, a recent example. A very, very good one would be Patrick Buchanan, um, who, um, you know, the herald of Trumpism, if you will. Um, he, he was a um, brilliant speechwriter for Nixon and Reagan. He spoke very well in the name of the people, this you know, mysterious imaginary beast. But what really was he doing? He was speaking for one group of politicians who wanted to replace another. Um, similarly, in, the, um, in Britain, you have um, the, um, the anti-Europeans, they claimed to be speaking, the anti-European Union, they claimed um, to be speaking for the British people, whereas in fact what they were doing, they were a minority in the Tory party. They were a minority in the Tory party that wanted to become the majority of the Tory party. And indeed, um, if, you're an anti, if you're a European, you would say, alas, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> Populism well, historically in the United States, of course, was something quite different. It was rather like, you know, rather like fascism and Nazism. Populism was something historically quite specific. It was the more um, working class or, or um, uh, farming element of a reform tradition, a reform movements in the um, 1890s. I was going to say this comes out wonderfully in the rhetoric of Donald Trump himself, who paints himself constantly as an underdog. He's always, you know, the 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 multi-million dollar underdog, the guy who has everything underdog, who speaks for the people. Oh, he's, he's, he's masterful at it. And populists are. I mean, they, they um, I mean, you put your finger there on something that's, that's interesting um, about the um, let's call it the hard right, because as, as we've said, you know, populism is can be misleading. But you put your finger on something that's very interesting about the hard right, is they have a, a, a very brilliant and 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 a, appealing set of rhetorical appeals, and one of them is the victim. We are we're victims. We have been we're the victims of liberal elites. We're the victims of foreigners. Uh, a related theme is the true nation, the true people have been captured. Who have they been captured by? They've been captured by liberal elites or they've been captured by foreigners. These are very, very appealing. Um, but when you look at them, they're really quite empty, <laughs> as indeed, you, you, you know, Trump, the, mil the billionaire, 
he hasn't yeah. captured, he hasn't been captured by anybody no <laughs> I think that just right below the surface of this, and I speak as somebody who's from the Midwest, I'm from Kansas, and there's just a lot of resentment. And it's resentment stoked by people like Trump against uh, this putatively powerful East Coast or maybe Silicon Valley elite. But you know, again, if you look at the numbers, like the New York Times is somehow an evil entity. Do you know how many people read the New York Times? It's not that many. No, <laughs> it's, it's they're hardly controlling the national agenda when you know several hundred thousand people read them on a daily basis. It's a country yeah. of over three hundred million people. <laughs> they're not reading the New York Times. <laughs> no, it's, 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 I mean, we could go back. I mean, if we had more time, we could go back and find that that trope on the right um, from the beginning of, of how those actually with money and power and um, institutional placement and, and connections and network, they play the victim. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a brilliant one. Yeah, it really is. And it's uh, they get a lot of mileage out of it. I want to... Um, can I just uh, the, take, idea, the idea of the Eastern establishment or the yeah, um, Silicon, Silicon Valley establishment um, and resentment? I think it, it, it's delicate here because, I mean, speaking as a sort of left-wing liberal who might be typed as a, as a member of an elite, um, I, I, you know, one has to be tread delicately here and sensitively. However, um, I, I think the resentment against what's going on is palpable. There are a lot of folk... Who are in trouble, um, and you know they shouldn't be. However, I don't think it's it's much too easy to blame an East Coast establishment or um, the Silicon Valley. But that's one point. The second point is that actually, when you look at who is doing the complaining, they're not actually in that much trouble. I'm not thinking of Trump, but I'm thinking more of um, the. Trump vote or the Brexit vote, the anti-European vote for the um, new Tory party in Britain. When you actually look at the vote, it's quite a classic right-wing vote. It's suburban, it's conservative, um, it's very familiar. So what's gone on here, there is undoubtedly a lot of anger and resentment about, but what are these voters angry and resentful for? I think much the best thing I've read on this was written, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago by one of the best neoconservatives, Daniel Bell. Um, and he thought that it was to do, again, this idea of competing elites comes back. He thought it was to do with um, the resentment of local elites who feel that they have lost, lost authority locally to much more national elites, whether in the universities, whether in the um, government. And I think there's something much more telling there in what is actually going on than in this idea um, of um, distressed um, working class people who are revolting against liberal elites. I, that to me is crude and rather um, cloth-eared. Whereas I think Daniel Bell's very brilliant essay, it was in 1962, I think, was far more far-sighted and to the point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right about that. I remember seeing a chart. Uh, I 
taught for a while at Harvard University and in one of the hallways, they had a chart of the percentage of Harvard undergraduates who were from Massachusetts. And in 1940, it was about 80%. Right. And today it's about 3%. Yeah. So you have seen the formation of a kind of national, I don't know what to call it, Elite probably isn't the right word, but American culture has been nationalized so that the localities, I think, feel somewhat neglected. And I speak as somebody who is from the localities uh, in this formation of, uh, I guess I would call it meritocratic, I don't know what to call it, uh, national elite. The other thing I would say very quickly is is that you- quite right. I I think that's absolutely right. And I think think when people look back, I mean, you're a historian- um, I, I think, I think that what you could call the political geography of what has gone on over the last forty, fifty years is going to be, become a much bigger part of the story than many of the things we can see in front of our eyes now. Yeah. You see the same kind of of difficulty in France, um, where you know, it, localities feel isolated by a, a growth in national trends that don't feel to be in their control. I think that's yeah. that, that's very true and very important. Yeah, that's a, I, I, I think that's right. I, I do. I, I get the sense from, you know, my people in the provinces in Kansas that they feel neglected somehow by the formation of this national culture, that they, they weren't really part of it. Um, universities, universities. I think it's a very good example. Yeah, the universities is, is definitely part of it, I think. Yeah. You know, the other thing you hear about universities is, is they're terribly, terribly, well, we could go on and on about universities, but they've become a kind of whipping boy for the right. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's interesting. I mean, if you look at, um, I mean, there was a big, I think, I don't know exactly when the switch happened, but among Republicans, um, universities always used to be um, very high, highly esteemed, whereas in the 2016 election, I think it was, if you look among Trump voters, um, universities, as you say, have, have become the whipping boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to um, ask you one more question, um, and it has to do with something on the last couple of pages of the book. And you write a sentence that goes like this, we are living in an era of the right, and then a paragraph follows, ellipsis, the left is everywhere in retreat. Right. Can you talk about that? Yes. I think what I meant by that was that the left as either alternative government or and or, or an alternative vision of society with aims and ideals, I think is in retreat, as are the traditional post-1945 parties of the left. Um, This may seem surprising, particularly since it is quite possible that um, we having this conversation in two weeks' time, um, I would look quite out of date because (laughs) Democrats had won the White House and possibly even the Senate. But I think here, by the left, we we need to mean something rather more specific than the um, Democratic Party um, today, which after all is 
has very, very few left-wing policies when you look at it hard. And don't forget that Bernie Saunders and Elizabeth Warren, who had a more left-wing agenda, although nothing socialist in any historic sense, um, they were you know, badly bested in the, in the primaries by Democratic voters. So the left I'm talking about is much more the strongly social democratic or even um, um, socialist left that was still quite a force, certainly in Europe in the um, post-1945 period. But now it really is in serious decline in France, Germany, and in, the, in, in Britain. Um, that element is um, in France and Germany. I think um, the, even the classic um, social democratic parties are now less than 20% of the vote. In Britain, um, um, Jeremy Corbyn, who tried to run a more make the Labour Party into more of a left-wing vehicle, got um, badly beaten in the election last December. So I think the left in party terms is in decline. I think intellectually it's in decline. It's, uh, you know, the the neo-Marxist tradition is very alive in the universities, mainly in the humanities department, I add, not in the economics departments. So, um, you know, in, intellectually, I think the left is in decline. I think it's um, in decline um, in party terms. And finally, quickly, I think the, the rise of identity politics um, has indeed, um, important as it is, important as its campaigns are, they, they do not add up together as a governing philosophy. And I think the left has much of its energy now is distracted um, into those campaigns, valuable and important as they are. And I think those three reasons were behind that um, payoff line where I say the left is everywhere in retreat. Well, uh, Edmund Fawcett, I want to thank you very much for talking with us today. I'm very, very pleased to have done this and uh, much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to Edmund Fawcett about his book, Conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. I hope you turn in next time. Bye-bye.